welcome to the Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones. And I'm your co-host, Clara Tatefield. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and final year law students who are very passionate about feminism and the law. Today on the podcast, we are delighted to have Abby Smith, Director of the Criminal Defence and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic, Co-Director of the E. Barrett Prettyman Fellowship Programme and Professor of Law at Georgetown University. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Abby. Thank you so much for the introduction. Um, We're wondering maybe if you could tell us more about your pathway into law, more specifically your pathway into criminal law. I often tell my students that I apparently read the book and saw the movie To Kill a Mockingbird too many times as an impressionable young person. um, And that that was one of the things that kind of sparked my interest. But of course, that's a paradigmatic image of the lawyer. Um, the lawyer as champion of somebody who's being treated unfairly, of the underserved, of, you know, that was that was a story about a rather patrician white male lawyer in um, the Depression era, Deep South, representing a black man wrongly accused of sexually assaulting a white woman. It was a case that had all the horrible hallmarks of what in, existed in the Jim Crow criminal legal system. Anyhow, that was powerful. It was a great story. I kind of identified more with Scout, the daughter, um, than anybody else. I figured I would grow up and she would grow up and we'd be very similar um, because she seemed like she was going to follow in her father's footsteps. I grew up on the coattails of the 1960s generation and grew up in Chicago um, in 1968. And thereafter, I became kind of obsessed with the Chicago 7 trial, which was recently made into a a feature film by by Aaron Sorkin. And for me, that was a formative event, the image of anti-Vietnam War protesters as criminal defendants, the one Black defendant bound and gagged. Um, I, I guess I always had a very strong sense of justice and injustice. Nobody in my family was a lawyer. I tended to have rather passionate opinions about things. And my parents, I think early on said, oh, you're gonna be a lawyer. And for me, there was really no other image than the criminal lawyer. Uh, The other formative event for me was when I was a sophomore in high school, I was in a sociology class and there was a field trip to the Cook County Jail. The Cook County Jail is Chicago's pre-trial detention facility where people await trial and they do relatively short sentences, largely in misdemeanors. Um, in fact, the current warden of the Cook County Jail describes the jail as the largest mental health facility in the country because jail d- detainees tend to be disproportionately people who suffer from mental health problems. Anyhow, I walked in the jail with a bunch of other high school kids, you know, in our little cardigan sweaters and, and overwhelmingly white and an overwhelmingly black jail. And I kind of felt at home. There was a visceral feeling of connection for me for whatever reason and um, background didn't matter. I just looked around and I felt like these largely young black guys could have been people I knew if only they had by the accident of birth been born in my neighborhood. And um, we're walking through the prison and we are kind of taking a tour, I guess. And at one point we walk through the, pri- the, the jail bakery and one of the guys yells out, hey, you want a loaf of bread? And my fellow students kind of giggled nervously. I said, sure, and he tossed me one. I felt very honored, although my mother refused to serve what she called prison bread at dinner. Um, 
so those are those are all my answers. And, and when I, you know, I'm lucky in a way because for me, it sounds a little pretentious probably, but it's a bit of a calling. I've kind of known that this was going to be my life's work for a long time, which is lucky because there's a lot of clarity in that. And, you know, it means that as an undergraduate, I worked in various community-based law offices, um, a legal services office, something called the um, New Haven Law Collective that were largely focused on um, representing disadvantaged people, um, people in the criminal system, poor people. And um, by the time I got to law school, I was, you know, it was, it was pretty clear where I was going to be headed, though I should tell you that I think in response to some questionnaire somewhere, I don't remember whether it was high school or college, you know, I, I think the phrase feminist lawyer was was some something I saw for myself in the future. So I'm, I think I'm in lockstep with this podcast. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Um, so now focusing on um, one of your articles, um, you recently wrote an article called Can You Be a Feminist and a Criminal Defence Lawyer? Um, so I'm wondering if you could explain to us how you reconcile both of these facets of your identity. So for me, that's not a binary. That's not something that needs reconciliation. It's part of my identity. Um, and it's a big part of my identity um, that I'm kind of a left intellectual feminist criminal defense lawyer with a sense of humor um, is kind of how I walk through life. It's something I feel passionately about still. Um, it's something that I share with students. I'm not capable of a, a very much mystery. I kind of am who I am. You can tell it from my personality, from the things I tend to talk about, from the reading materials I assign to students, the posters in my office. Um, it's, it's not a hard one. The reason I titled the article that way is because oftentimes law students have that question. Um, law students um, see feminism and criminal defense as in tension with each other, if not in outright conflict. Um, over the years, it's uh, kind of been conventional feminist wisdom for entering law students that they're interested in criminal law, they ought to be a prosecutor. Because as a prosecutor, you can prosecute sex crimes, you can prosecute domestic violence, you can prosecute child abuse. And all those things intuitively, I think sometimes for young people feel feminist, they feel like that kind of, of lawyering is more in sync with feminism. Um, I think there's a misunderstanding there about the role that prosecutors play in the system and whether they really are on, on the side of those they think they're on the side of. Because women in domestic violence cases, children in child abuse cases, you know, women and men in sexual assault cases, those are witnesses. They're not the prosecutor's client. The prosecutor's client is the state writ large. And the state doesn't have to be terribly mindful or thoughtful about the feelings of their witnesses. And oftentimes, um, the folks that, that young feminist lawyers would be prosecutors think they're protecting they're not protecting they're using now maybe they're using for a, a bigger cause they believe in but i think there's real harm done to the agency of 
women in particular in complicated criminal cases that are as much a social problem as they are a criminal problem that often have facets of other complicated problems, drugs and alcohol, um, mental health problems, the violence of our society that very easily spills into um, our most cherished institutions, family, church, education. I, I, you know, so I think it's more complicated than some young feminists who believe they ought to be prosecutors might feel. I've had a lot of those students, they change their minds um, after spending a little time in a, prosecution's, in a prosecution office or, or spending a little time in a defense office. And sometimes it's just a matter of sensibility. You start to feel, huh, what side do I really mean to be on? Um, my brand of feminism includes a critical understanding of power and hierarchy. And I think that's core to feminist analysis and to most um, feminist theory. It's, you know, I'm not simply concerned about unfairness in the workplace for women, um, employment discrimination, sexual harassment at work or at school. Those things are part of feminism, no doubt. But I ascribe to a more ambitious sort of feminism that looks critically at the power structures in our society and the way they impact institutions. And the criminal legal system has become an ever-growing institution in the United States. You know, we seek to gobble up most of the population, it seems. You know, we put in cages in the United States more people than any country on earth. That's an astonishing fact. And I think it's something that we in this country will look upon in shame um, eventually, hopefully, that we couldn't think of anything better to do with 2 million people than put them in concrete and steel cages in 2023. It makes no sense. Um, and, you know, look, sometimes the cases are complicated. Um, and I say to my students, and I try to teach through some of the complications, but here's the other thing about feminism I ascribe to. It's complicated. It's not black and white. It's gray. Violence sometimes happens in cycles. When violence is done to somebody, they often will reproduce that violence. That happens in families, typically. And there's a lot of really good feminist social science research on that topic. Um, so I get a sexual assault case or a child abuse case. I'm curious about the evolution of that behavior. Um, I'm not just looking to blame. I'm, I'm asking questions. Um, is it uncomfortable sometimes to be a criminal defense lawyer and a feminist? Absolutely. But is it uncomfortable sometimes to be a criminal defense lawyer? Hard stop? Yes, of course. That's why they pay us the big bucks. You know, it's because it's interesting and challenging and full of hard questions. For feminists, you know, what I focused on in a previous article actually called Representing Rapists, I focus on cross-examination because that's the most intimate confrontation that happens in a criminal case when a defense lawyer has to confront and cross-examine an alleged victim in a rape case. You know, they're the, the alleged victims are overwhelmingly women, but sometimes they're men. Um, they're also girls. And as a feminist, as a woman, 
I think most of us who are criminal defense lawyers in that context will recognize that the person that we have the most in common with is the person who's the alleged victim, who we're about to cross-examine. And of course, that can be uncomfortable. And I think that in order to be an effective criminal defense lawyer, you have to be motivated by more than your role, your critical role in the adversary system. You got to find something else to attach to, in my view. And usually I attach to the client. I find some reason um, that, uh, you know, to really see my client's humanity and understand my client as a human. If that doesn't work, then I'll attach to my client's mother because almost everybody comes with a mother. Um, and I have a son. My worst nightmare would be that my son would get caught up in the criminal legal system. I, I know it well, and it's not a place for anybody I love. So I hope I'm conveying that it's, I take a complicated view of feminism and a deeply critical view of the criminal legal system. The criminal legal system is the most male, hierarchical, violent, arbitrary system that we have. Um, all of the values of our criminal legal system are contrary to feminist values. There's no hope for change anymore. There's just punishment, blame, and banishment. There's no curiosity about the role that larger institutions play in criminal conduct. Feminists are deeply concerned about the larger forces in society. Um, and I don't want to be part of a feminism that looks, you know, only to punish individuals, most of whom um, were pretty disadvantaged in the first instance. I'm a, I'm a poverty lawyer. I'm an indigent criminal defense lawyer. That's also a big motivator for me, by the way. I don't represent wealthy people who have a lot of privilege and, and you know, who knock on my door and ask me to represent them. I've never turned down a criminal case, a court appointment. But um, a lot of what motivates me is the fact that my clients are poor and disadvantaged. But that's overwhelmingly who make up the criminal legal system in this country and frankly, in most countries, there's disproportionate impact on black and brown people. And if you weren't poor in the first instance, by the time you've been grabbed up and incarcerated, you're poor. Um, so that, and that's helpful to me. And I think a feminist understanding of poverty runs very deep, uh, an understanding of that kind of disadvantage historically and, and still. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you make a lot of really interesting points about the, the carceral system in America and how people are being caged. And, you know, you said like the country couldn't think of anything better to do with 2 million people, which is just absolutely mind boggling. Um, so I guess continuing with this with this theme of like reconciling being a feminist with the, with a criminal defense lawyer, um, it's it's commonly accepted, for example, that people can be like religious and LGBTQ. So why then did you kind of feel the need to ex to express um, these 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 issues um, with an article about reconciling being a feminist and a criminal defense lawyer? So I guess what motivated you to write the article? I, I think because still, even though there's been a bit of a shift in the current generation of law students, which I attribute to a number of things. I think more and more undergraduates have read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, or Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, or any number of other books about the criminal legal system in the US. 
um, as undergraduates. And I think that's been intellectually eye-opening. Um, in the US, and I believe abroad as well, there's a greater understanding of police and layperson violence against unarmed black and brown people, um, generally young black men, but also young black and brown women. Um, and have seen that kind of in real time as people videotape these horrible incidents of, you know, police and and citizen violence. And I, th I think there's been an awakening um, about mass incarceration, about the harshness of the criminal legal system. The fastest growing rate of prisoners in the United States is women. And I think my students have an awareness of that as well. And you know, boy, that ought to be a feminist issue. We are locking up mothers and daughters and sisters, um, and it wrecks havoc on families. The disproportionate locking up of poor black and brown men also wrecks havoc on families, communities. Um, there are some communities in the United States where the figures are really, I think to call it genocidal is not hyperbole, where one in two young black men between the ages of 18 and 30 are either incarcerated or under some sort of criminal legal system supervision. I mean, that robs communities of men. Um, and increasingly, we're robbing communities of women and the harm done to children of mothers incarcerated is, is well known and well documented. Um, so increasingly, I think students come to law school with a bit more awareness. And frankly, the same is, is true abroad. We get a number of, of post-law um, you know, graduates who either come to the United States for further legal education or they come to the United States because they want to work on behalf of defendants charged with capital murder. Um, you know, Clive Stafford Smith, um, uh, who's an amazing lawyer, um, from the UK um, was an extraordinary death penalty lawyer in the United States. And now um, he heads an organization called Reprieve and still does that work internationally. He was one of the first lawyers to step up and start representing people at Guantanamo. He's kind of part of uh, you know, a sizable group of Brits um, and, and, and others who come to fight against injustice in the United States, which is really interesting if you think about it because Usually people, young people who are interested in international human rights go to developing countries. They don't go to the United States, but there is an increasing awareness that the criminal legal system in the United States were like a rogue nation. Um, you know, it used to be in the 19th century when uh, Tocqueville um, wrote his, um, his book on democracy in America that the United States was looked at as a, as a lenient country when it came to criminal justice. And man, we've really um, come far away from that image. Um, so still, there are young people who come to law school thinking, and perhaps especially because of the hashtag Me Too movement, that you, you need to be on the side of women. And somehow intuitively, I think young Feminists think that means being on the side of alleged victims in the criminal legal system, um, and so I wanted to I wanted to kind of take that on. It, it has been you know I titled the article "Can You Be a Feminist and a Criminal Defense Lawyer That Way?" because I've written about this topic in many many other articles, just never titled it as explicitly. 
I'm kind of glad I did because it means people can find it if they have that question just by Googling that, that you know, those, those words, that exact question. Um, the other thing I try to address in the article that I think is a reflection of the current popular culture is the hashtag me too mantra, believe women. And I think that leads some young feminists to think, well, then then you ought to be on the side of women who are complaining witnesses in criminal cases um, because you know there are civil lawsuits involving sexual assault and there are criminal prosecutions. And if you know, we believe women, then we should fight on the side of women. So I, in that article, um, take a very critical view of the slogan, believe women. I think it's infantilizing of women. I don't think any one group always tells the truth. That's absurd. Um, there are plenty of reasons that people, especially in an adversary system, might take the stand and embellish or omit um, I used to think as a young public defender that there was some kind of chemical on the Bible or whatever it was they would have witnesses put their hands on and swear to tell the truth. And then suddenly the most truth telling people would engage in the worst sort of exaggeration and defensiveness and manipulation. It feels adversarial. And, you know, historically in this country, especially with regard to rape, there's a very insidious racist history of the use of the rape charge against black man against black men when there is a white woman complaining witness and you don't need to dig around too hard to find those cases one of the best examples of feminism and criminal defense coming together with a clear eye about the history of the racist use of the rape charge in the United States is the 1972 U.S. Supreme Court case, Coker versus Georgia, um, which challenged the use of capital punishment in rape as opposed to in murder. And what I'm proud of is the number of feminist organizations that signed on um, and wrote amicus briefs on behalf of the defendant, basically detailing the history of the use of rape and the use of white women to um, you know, participate in the history of the death penalty in this country. Um, and murder is different from rape. And... Um, you know, I, I just, you know, I look at that example and I think, okay, that's a really important understanding for feminists is that they don't want to, we don't want to play that role. We don't want to be in lockstep with forces that we don't agree with. And this reminds me a little bit of the violence against women movement in the 1970s and 80s. And I'm, you know, somebody who, before I moved to Washington, D.C. to teach at Georgetown, my association with Washington DC was getting up early on a, you know on, on a weekend um, to take a bus to Washington DC to march around in some protest and I remember marching in a you know anti-violence against women protest and I looked to my left and I looked to my right and the people who were marching with me were not people that I really wanted to associate with um, they were kind of hard right 
pro-family, put those in air quotes, um, who were anti-LGBTQ and, you know, anti-choice and, you know, in favor of, of long sentences. They were victims' rights type lawyers, and that was uncomfortable for me. And, you know, I would urge anybody these days who calls himself a feminist to look very hard at the ignoble history of feminists and victim rights um, organizers that that feminists kind of got co-opted in calling for more and more punishment as opposed to you know a more enlightened way of dealing with sexual assault in a society that in which sexual assault has always run rampant there you know there are ways to approach it aside from locking up individuals forever and throwing up the throwing out the key and certainly there are other ways other ways other other than capital punishment Thank you for that really extensive overview. That was really interesting. Um, so you touched on the Me Too movement. So I'd like to go back to that part um, which you discuss in your article um, about the issues surrounding the Me Too movement, um, which was spurred on by waves of allegations of sexual assault and misconduct against Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. Um, so you write about the fact that women mostly will side with the hashtag Me Too movement and therefore assume that any such allegation made against a man will be true. Um, how does this stance affect your work as a criminal defense lawyer? Well, you know, it's it's very similar. Harvey Weinstein was criminally prosecuted um, and women came forward and testified. Um, there's a lot of criticism of the lawyers who represented Weinstein. The, the, the lawyer in the end who represented him in New York City was a woman. Um, and I think she called herself a feminist. She made some mistakes in interviews um, uh, publicly. Um, uh, there was one famous one in you know which she declared basically this would never happen to me because I have my wits about me, um, you know, which was thinly veiled victim blaming and 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 didn't come across terribly well. But, you know, she explained her defense of him the same way as um, there was an African-American lawyer, Ronald Sullivan, who got into some trouble at Harvard University where he teaches when he signed on to be part of the Weinstein team. Women undergraduates at Harvard where he was the dean of a college and was in a kind of um, parental role. Um, some of the women in the college were, were very angry that somebody who partly had a role as mentor and as counselor and as the receiver of those sorts of complaints of sexual assault and so on would take on a high profile criminal defendant in a sex assault case. I thought the women were, were absolutely right to protest and share their feelings. Um, I thought Professor Sullivan was was also right to explain why he chose to do what he did um, as a criminal defense lawyer. I mean, these cases are complicated. Um, you know, I'm I'm glad that I, I can I can feel both ways. I can be glad that people stepped up, that women stepped up and um, shared their stories of abuse, but also believe in process. In, in due process of law, in the importance of criminal defense lawyers asking questions 
and making the state prove its case. Um, I think we're better as a society when that happens. I worry sometimes about the narrative of women's fragility in court, that um, kind of cliche about women being victimized twice, one at the hands of an abuser, first at the hands of an abuser, and then in court. I think that's kind of dangerous. I have cross-examined women. Women are perfectly strong and able to answer questions. Um, I think there's some prosecutorial responsibility here as well. Prosecutors ought to practice direct and cross-examination with women who've been traumatized and help them to present themselves as well as they can. It's not just me in a courtroom by myself. Um, but I think women are perfectly capable, even when confronted with a narrative of consent, which happens a lot in the um, sexual assault cases involving celebrities and so on. They're perfectly capable in cross-examination of saying, no, that's not what happened to me. I did not consent. This was forcible sexual assault. Um, I, I just don't like that narrative. And I don't like the narrative that women are so precious, so angelic, that we never, ever tell a lie, that we never, ever have our own motives to be other than truthful. And, you know, let me say this, and I realize that this is complicated, perhaps, especially for the current generation um, of law students. You know, I think especially in the young person cases in the United States, the case that comes to mind, the shorthand for the case is the Stanford swimmer case. It involved a freshman um, at Yale, a man who was on the swim team and a young woman who attended a party that involved a lot of members of the swim team. And maybe it was a fraternity party or something like that. And the man was... Um, accused and convicted of sexual assault and um, sentenced to, among other things, he was sentenced to six months in jail, which there was a, an outcry about, and to a lifetime requirement that he be on a sex offender registry. Now, I've spoken about this case in my colleagues' criminal law classes. They have me come in to offer a different perspective. Um, the six-month sentence I thought was appropriate, was consistent with what the pre-trial service, what, what the pre-sentencing report, which is a kind of division of a probation department, had recommended as consistent with the allegations, with the background of the convicted offender and the nature of the offense. Um, what I thought was wrong was lifetime sex offender registration. I think there ought to be a hearing to determine dangerousness and whether this is a person who poses a danger to other women or whether this is a person who, as a result of his experience in the criminal legal system, has learned a lesson. Um, those sex offender, those aspects of the sex offender laws in the United States are deeply and often permanently punitive. They banish people from family homes, from jobs, from living in locations that are too close to parks and schools. 
Um, there are situations in which people on the sex offender registry are literally living under bridges and highways because there's no place else for them to live. We are way too punitive when it comes to, to, to you know, sex offenses, which run the gamut. There's, there's not, there's a prototype, but that does not reflect the variations on sex offenses. And what I'm going to say that's controversial is, in my view, young people, alcohol, and sex is a really toxic combination. And I think it's hard to know what exactly goes on when the people involved are both inebriated and when there's youth and bravado and yes, sometimes regret and oftentimes really bad sex. And I'm not equating sexual assault to bad sex. Please don't get me wrong, but I think youth Drugs and alcohol and sex are really complicated. And, you know, I worry about the harshness and the bluntness of the criminal law in those circumstances. I wish we were a society that was much more willing to engage in some of the techniques, at least, of restorative justice. And as I point out in the article, I think it's really interesting that feminists and in the United States, Black feminists are very involved in the restorative justice movement, the prison abolition movement. Um, I just think, I think we can do better in, in those kinds of cases. And I am not saying that people, that men who abuse their power and prey, groom women and then prey upon them shouldn't be held accountable. Of course they should be held accountable. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that I just don't like the kind of overprotection of women as fragile and precious, I think that's sexist. And I think women ought to be able to speak for ourselves. And when we do, we do so quite well. We can defend ourselves just fine. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you mentioned that, especially like the bit about um, the, like the United States being too punitive, because a lot of people would argue that the criminal justice system is not punitive enough when it comes to to sexual violence. So I think that's a really interesting stance. In today's Feminist News Roundup, World Athletics has announced that transgender women who have gone through male puberty can no longer compete in women's international competitions as of the 31st of March. WA said that this move was done to prioritize fairness and integrity of female competition. Also in today's news roundup, research from the BBC shows that 8 out of 10 firms pay men more than women. The wage difference remains at 9.4%, the same figure as in 2017 to 18, which represents the first time period where firms were required to publish these figures. In Iran, the police have started to install cameras to identify women not wearing a hijab. In the country, women have been required to cover their head with a hijab since the 1979 Islamic Revolution, which tightened the religious law. Women caught not wearing a hijab through these new smart cameras risk receiving a warning text as well as fines or even being arrested. Finally, the UN has said that the Taliban decision to bar Afghan female staffers from working at the agency is unacceptable and amounted to an unparalleled violation of women's rights. A UN spokesperson has called the move a, quote, violation of the inalienable fundamental human rights of women, end quote. If you have any suggestions for this podcast, let us know directly via email at contact at feministlaw.org. Please also visit our website at feministlaw.org and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with our latest articles, podcasts, newsletters, and exciting news. The music for this podcast was sourced from pixabay.com. Thanks for listening.